My source for drama, both at the West Wing and with Mr. Sterling, was always reality. It was always the way it actually works. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 708, more Lawrence O'Donnell. This week is the second half of my conversation with MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell, who, before he was an indispensable voice in the national conversation, was an actor, writer, and executive producer on The West Wing, and the creator and executive producer of his own show, Mr. Sterling, which told the story of Bill Sterling, played by baby Thanos Josh Brolin, the junior senator from California who everyone assumes is a Democrat. We recorded this conversation about Mr. Sterling back on May 22, 2020. And this second half of the conversation continues just as I was asking Lawrence how realistic or imagined his shows set in Washington, D.C. were. Was it, a, in your mind, a documentary of your own experience on Capitol Hill? Was it a wish fulfillment of how it could have been, should have been? It wasn't documentary at all. It was drama. And there's such a giant difference. There's such a giant difference. However, my source for drama, both at the West Wing and with Mr. Sterling, was always reality. It was always the way it actually works. Um, most people, when they write anything in the arena of Washington, or, or by the way, courtrooms, they can't live within the bounds of reality or they don't even know it. They literally don't even know it. And so these absurd things will happen in you know, TV courtrooms that could never happen. And on most of the Washington shows that have come along, absurd things that could never happen, happen mostly because the writers don't even know what, what the reality is. Um, and then um, within shows where they're trying to get the reality right, um, and this happens to dramatists everywhere, the reality, they, the reality feels like handcuffs. And so they violate it knowingly here and there you know, because they think they need to for their dramatic construction. And there are moments where I agree with that and agreed with it specifically on the West Wing a few times. Uh, really, really stunning departures from reality were, were done on the West Wing to the point where I thought there will be a little box in the Washington Post every Thursday morning saying, here's what they got wrong last night. And <laughs> nobody ever noticed and nobody cared. And so, but, but for me, in every one of my West Wing episodes, and certainly all my Sterling episodes, every single thing that you see, every single nuts and bolts thing that gets discussed is absolutely the way it works. And it's, and it's written within the, the actual limitations of reality because I found that's where the tension was. I found the dramatic tension is actually in the reality uh, of this conflict right here. And, and so, so there's that where I, for dramatic purposes only, because I believed it supplied me with the best drama, I chose strict reality. Uh, I did base characters, a couple of characters on real human beings in Mr. Sterling. And it actually led me down roads that I didn't adequately think about. And one of those is the Audrey McDonald 
character uh, because I based her on Bob Dole's chief of staff, uh, Sheila Burke, who was the who was referred to as the 101st senator because she was so powerful, mm. you know, the chief of staff to the Republican leader of the Senate. And she was just brilliant. And a, and she was a strategist operating so far over my head. I had to deal with her all the time. And I was always I was always uh, not showing how intimidated and worried I was because she's so pleasant. Her aspect and talking to me is so pleasant that um, it, anyone listening to it would think it's two friends talking. And it was two friends talking. But I knew that Sheila's capable of picking my pockets as we stand here. And I won't have any idea it's happening. You know, she was a nurse uh, who started, you know, her work, grew up in California, started her work life there. She ended up through a variety of ways working on healthcare policy uh, for Bob Dole and then worked her way up to becoming the chief, his chief of staff and the most really wonderful person. So, and she's blonde and, you know, Californian and a mother of three at the time and, and uh, in her forties or about 40, I guess. Yeah. I sort of have that character in mind, you know, when I'm writing this part. And so when casting comes, um, that's who's coming in that, that, and I think I might've even put some descriptor in, in the script, um, that, that led our casting directors to bring in that kind of actress and very good. Some, and some people who became, who went on to great things, uh, who I, and, and by the way, Austin, it's an amazing thing to me, how actors can go on to astronomical heights after being in an audition for a pilot with me on a series that went 10 episodes and they didn't get the part and they remember it forever in a friendly way. Right. So I have these very friendly encounters to this day with actresses who did not get that part, who are all very well known. Um, and so as we were trying to, you know, come up with some finalists and we're coming up for finalists for that part, I got a call uh, from Mark Hirschfeld, NBC casting. And he said to me, um, does that part have to be uh, race specific? And I took me a one full second to realize, no, it doesn't. And he went, oh, okay. Let me add some names to your list, okay? And so, Suddenly, you know, there was an Asian actress reading for it, and that's really interesting. And then, and, and Audra read for it in New York on video. And the way the casting sessions worked in those days is you'd sit there all day in casting sessions with LA actors in the live sessions. And, you know, it's incredibly, you know, draining for actors, obviously, but over time, over 10 hours of that, it, you're ultimately kind of drained a bit. And on the on the lazy side of the audition table, and um, and then and only then do you look at the video coming in from New York. So the video coming in from New York suffers tremendously because it's being shown to an exhausted person, you know. And so I, every video in from New York, I just no 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 no, and and I and Audra's video is in there, and I go no no no, and so and I was a philistine who didn't know who Audra McDonald was. I'd heard reference to she has some Tonys. I didn't know, I didn't know she had like 
a house full of them already, okay? So I actually didn't know her work and didn't know who she was. And I, I hate admitting that, but it's true. And I just kind of rejected it, her, her, her tape. And, and so then you talk to the network at the end of the day about here's what, what we harvested. And so, and Mark says to me something, well, what about Audra McDonald? And I said, well, no, nah, I, didn't, I didn't see anything there. And he said, well, can I fly her out? Would it be better for you to see her in person? I said, oh, no, no, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't fly her out, don't put her through that. Um, does she have a reel you can give me? And he sends the reel over, you know, and I look at the reel and I'm telling you, Austin, the first scene in the reel stops me absolutely cold. And I just say, wow, this is, this is it. This is, this is it. Um, and it's in an HBO thing and she's playing a nurse and she's in the hospital room with Vanessa Redgrave who's dying. And it is, oh, it's just, and by the way, it's also my energetic condemnation of the, of the audition process because it's, it's an absurdity in every way, uh, especially when there's a reel. Right, like, just show me that reel. I don't have to, you know, I, I, I and, and so, so then Audra went right to the top of my list and she didn't have to read it for me again to be at the top of my list. She was right at the top of my list. And when we went to network, you know, as you have to do with those big parts and in casting a pilot, I didn't bring in anyone else. I just brought in Audra McDonald and no one else. And the last time I had seen her do it, was in that unsatisfying video from New York, which involved no direction from us or anything. But I knew that what I'd seen on the reel is the best thing I've seen in the audition process for this part. <laughs> and she's gonna be great. And so, um, you know, and the, the studio tried to get me to convince one other actress who was my second choice to come in uh, to the network. Um, so that they wouldn't just be sending one actress to the network. Um, and that actress wanted something in her contract that wasn't financial, but just a specific thing in her contract um, that they wanted me to kind of talk her out of that because she likes me so much. She wants to work with me, that kind of thing. You know, just she'll come in if you ask her to come in. And I said to them, I am not going to ask her to come in and ask her to give up a point that she wants in her contract so that she can lose to Audrey McDonald in the room. I'm not gonna do that. And so, uh, and so, so we went in with Audrey alone and of course Audrey was it and Audrey was so perfect. And well, the other interesting element of this is that Audrey is that the black woman dynamic with Josh Brolin was a hugely important dramatic texture that that was it was indescribably helpful to the drama. And so not only, you know, was that part, as it turns out, open to all races, but it the whole thing becomes much more interesting when you do. Absolutely. And I and just selfishly, uh uh uh, I had two scenes with her in the pilot. And as we were sitting there waiting for a shot to be, and with the great Harris Yulin. Yes. Um, uh, and as we're sitting there waiting for something to be changed, she and I are sitting there chatting. She's 
um, autographing a CD for my mother-in-law because she's lovely. Mm -hmm. And Josh comes over, Josh Brolin comes over and, and says to her really condescendingly, ironically, you know, if this show goes, this could be really good for your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Multiple was, Tony winning Audra McDonald. Yeah, that was Josh. Yeah, and by the way, Harris Eulin was someone I had in mind, he's a friend of mine, and I'd had him in mind all the time I was writing. And that was one of those parts where it's, no, no, this is one person. This is just an offer. It's offer only to Paris Yule, and I don't want anybody, I don't want to think about anybody else. Yeah. And he was just a Rolls Royce in those scenes. He, he was just incredible. Hi, I'm Ken Ludwig, a playwright and author of Lend Me a Tenor, Crazy for You, Baskerville, and the new book, How to Teach Your Children Shakespeare. And you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, where right this second, you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can see The Ring Reduced, Lost Reduced, two Jeopardy tournaments of champions, plus brand new videos recorded and shot, especially for right now, plus the almost two-hour video Q&A Reed Martin and I conducted on Facebook, and our reduced reunion of over 50 RSC actors, stage managers, and wardrobe goddesses from at least four different time zones. Just go to our website, ReduceShakespeare.com, and click on the Remote Shakespeare Company link. We'll continue to add to this page, so be sure to bookmark it. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And you can watch Jenny, Reed, and I talk about the creation of Pop-Up Shakespeare in a video we just recorded. You can find it on the RSE Facebook page, the RSE YouTube page, or on the RSE website. Just go to the books menu at ReduceShakespeare.com and click on Pop-Up Shakespeare. And now back to my conversation with Lawrence O'Donnell talking more about the real-life inspirations for the show he created and executive produced, Mr. Sterling, starring Josh Brolin and Audrey McDonald, and for three episodes, guest starring me. Was the character of Mr. Sterling at all, who, who's famously independent, at all inspired by uh, one Bernard Sanders, or, and how much of it was inspired by who you cast? by the fact that you had Josh Brolin play. So when you, so here's how this story, the, the appointed Senator, cause Josh Brolin's playing, you know, an appoint, a Senator dies and they have, the governor has to appoint the Senator. California governor has to appoint the Senator immediately ends up appointing Josh. This was in, that was all in the, the feature script that I wrote many years before in the early 1990s. That's a game that Senate staff plays all the time, you know, because there aren't that many games to play in the Senate. So you're sitting around at two o'clock in the morning working on stuff or whenever, and you say, if so-and-so dies, who does the governor appoint? Okay, so the New York version of this, because I was working for New York Senate, okay, and the governor was Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's father. Andrew Cuomo, was the governor's 
right-hand man, chief of staff, top operative, okay? And so that was the dynamic, the dramatic dynamic in my head. If a New York Senator dies, who does Cuomo appoint? And of course he wants to appoint Andrew, which is exactly what happens in the Mr. Sterling pilot. His first impulse is I'm gonna appoint you, Andrew, uh, as, and, as played in the pilot, right? But Andrew is smarter than his father in this situation. And Andrew says, you can't, you cannot appoint me as much as I would love that and want that. Politically, the best thing for you to do is something else. And because there's been some scandal around the administration, the best thing for the governor to do, Andrew advises him in the Mr. Sterling pilot, is to appoint this very famous political name this very famous political name, um, William Sterling, Bill Sterling, giant name in California because his father was the governor of California. That came off of what was ultimately my answer in real life to who should Mario Cuomo appoint if the New York Senator dies. And my answer to that when we played that game was John Kennedy Jr. That's who he should appoint because then Governor Cuomo will bask in the aura of JFKism in New York. It will be good for him and it would be much better for him than the nepotistic choice of appointing Andrew, who we now see, by the way, turns out to be a great governor. Uh, and so it, that was all coming out of real people. Josh was playing. JFK Jr. in my game. That's who he was playing. That's fascinating. I don't think I ever knew that. And it's and it's so great because I've never I've never told it. I've I never told it to Josh. I've never, I don't believe I ever told it to anybody involved in the production. That I don't well, in, in over 700 episodes of the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, I think I'd have my first scoop. Yes, it's a scoop. <laughs> That's a scoop. That's exactly right. And my yeah. old friend and my friend David Starzik played Andrew Cuomo, who knew? That's right. And, and let me just add something about John Kennedy Jr., who, who I knew. I, I didn't know him very, very well, but I knew him well enough to know that he was politically more surprising than people realized. He, he wasn't a straight down the line, thinks everything his Uncle Teddy thinks automatically. Uh, and I was playing some of that, you know, where Josh turns out to not uh, be strictly in the same identical political mold as his father, and that surprises everybody. And, uh, and, and, and no one, you know, no one would ever think to ask John Kennedy Jr., are you a Democrat? Like that just would never come up, right? right. It couldn't possibly come up into anyone's head. And the answer to that is in real life is, well, yes, but, you know, is, is what the answer to that was. Um, he certainly had real independent leanings. And so that was also part of my game in my head when I was playing it, you know, in the Senate about, you know, what would, what would he turn out to be, you know, politically and what would he, what would he want to be? Um, and so John was part of, definitely part of my modeling, not as clearly as Sheila Burke was for what the Audra character was, but he, he definitely was in, in my head there. Was the Tommy Doyle character played by William Russ at all inspired by you? Yeah, 
No, it was inspired by Dan Crane, who was the legislative director in Senator Moynihan's office. He's a guy from Boston. Uh, he grew up in the Democratic Party. His uncle was a uh, elected official in Massachusetts. He's absolutely thoroughly that Tommy Doyle, you know, Irish Catholic, Northeastern urban kind of uh, character who doesn't believe that there's uh, any alternative religion to <laughs> the Democratic Party and a very old world way of, of phrasing it. And um, that, that was based on, on a real person a, and a dear friend of mine who taught me everything. I mean, you know, he, when I first started working in the Senate, Dan Crane, who went to the same high school I went to in Boston, uh, I didn't know him, but he knew I had gone to that high school. He kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if you need any help about understanding what's going on here. I didn't understand anything about what was going on here. And so Dan Crane was one of my great and important mentors. And I still uh, call Dan Crane to this day to say, hey, what do you think McConnell is, <laughs> is gonna do? And, and it's the best read I get on anything that's happening in Washington. I know that Aaron Sorkin gets this question all the time and I hope that you do. And if you don't, let me ask, any chance of a Mr. Sterling reboot? We need shows that give us hope about the government again. Yeah, well, you know, I would, um, I, I gotta say, I think it's, it's harder to reboot it than ever because I was thinking about it today. I was thinking about if you had to do it, if you had to, you know, in this political environment, what would be the drama story in the Senate, you know? And I think, I think one of the dramas would be dealing with, you know, some Mitt Romney-like Republican or actually someone more disguised than Romney, because Romney has come right out and said Trump shouldn't be president. He voted, you know, to remove him in the impeachment trial. But one of these many other Republican senators who used to be decent human beings like Rob Portman or somebody like that, who I know were decent human beings, who are operating full on the fully indecent side of our politics every day in support of Trump. I think there'd be an interesting kind of drama in like in the Josh Brolin character being the guy on the Democratic side who finds the way to have the secret conversations with that person and tries to coax that person. But it's it's a limited series because I, I don't know, I just don't, I, I mean, I. I've got one little dynamic, dramatic dynamic that I can think of that works within the world we currently have. And, and it wouldn't necessarily be Trump as the president. I don't think you'd, you'd want that, but, but what you would, I think what you would need to do, I think that the dramatic challenge you would need to take on is what is it like to work in the Senate with a president like that, who's violating every norm, who's firing inspectors general, who's doing all these things that, you know, 40 of these Republican senators in the past have strongly stated they're opposed to, you know, what is it like to be working in that weird dynamic under that scary, uh, you know, rule and norm violator uh, up there on the top of it all? And, um, and working with 40 senators who you could work with in the past, but now for some reason are not making any public the right. declarations of, of, of being against this guy. Somehow they've yeah. all fallen silent. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I, there is a really interesting mystery about why those Republicans behave the way they do. You know, when I was working in the Senate, Mitch McConnell was one of the 
very reasonable Republicans. Mitch McConnell was the chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee who recommended expelling a Republican Senate Committee chairman and that Republican chairman then resigned because when once Mitch McConnell recommended expelling him, he knew the vote to expel him was going to be 99 to nothing, you know, because that, that's how respected McConnell's finding on this would be. And, and it would be to expel a Republican senator. And, and that's all inconceivable now. And so, you know, Mitch McConnell is a, is a different human being and a complete mystery to me. Uh, and I have theories about what they say or would say privately to their children about why they do what they do. And I think it all has to do with, yes, you know, Trump is a disaster, but if I wasn't there, it would be worse, you know, and variations on that. Right. And, um, and we're just waiting for him to be out of office and then we'll go back to normal. You know, that's their basic, I think, personal justification. Um, but it's, a, it's an incredibly narrow, dramatic arena now to try to work in, you know, because you can't, you can't realistically do anything legislatively, you know, like they don't, they don't vote for anything. They don't pass anything. They don't, I mean, even these committee, like we did these finance committee scenes, you know, that had real stuff happening in them. And we, and we built a hearing room to do it because, you know, Harris Ulan's hearing room was going to be a major focus of, of dramatic action. And those hearing rooms now aren't even used. I mean, they just I, don't, they don't, legislate that way anymore and and so it's an incredible challenge i mean i i would absolutely love to do it i think one of the production challenges you're going to have coming out of the coronavirus is what can you actually shoot other than courtroom drama which is literally <laughs> the only thing i've thought of that you can shoot you can shoot the the trial section, you know, of law and order, like it has to be, but you can't do the, you know, going out in the street, you can't have anybody kissing anybody, you can't, you know, until there's a vaccine that really works. Right. Um, but I think right now, the only thing you could actually shoot, because I know how to shoot it, is courtroom drama, where everyone can be separated and, you know, easily socially distanced and well stuff. we will look forward to the time when we can do all of that that's it for this week's reduced shakespeare company podcast except in just a few minutes lawrence and i will talk about the greatest bits of actor direction we've ever received now send us your favorite bit of direction you've ever received via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com you can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on facebook at rse podcast on instagram at reduced shakespeare company or on my preferred platform on twitter at reduced you can also follow me on twitter at austin titchener and you can follow lawrence o'donnell on on Twitter at Lawrence. Thanks as always to Beltway Insider Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. A random fan shout out this week goes to Karen Osler. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to another great writer, playwright Ken Ludwig. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 708 2024ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. 
finally, I just have to thank you because uh, uh, thanks to Mr. Sterling, I got to work with you. I got to work with um, Josh Brolin and Audrey McDonald and, and William Ross and Harris, Newland and Chris Matthews and Jenna Jameson. So yes, you did. Yeah, and uh, and James Whitmore, of course. I mean, that was that was just a dream, you know. But, James, James Whitmore coming in there, um, he was just fantastic. And I was directed by his son several yeah. times. Yep. Uh, on 24, and I think maybe on Mr. Sterling. Yes, yes, and, he directed Mr. Sterling, yeah. Oh, and definitely on Providence, because he gave me the favorite bit of direction I've ever received from a from a director. He said, he came over, and I'm supposed to hand an envelope to uh, somebody, and he says, uh, he said, uh, Mr. Tishman, would it shred your envelope of truth if you held the envelope here rather than here? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, Mr. Whitmore, I think I can handle that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, which I love my, that. Uh, my greatest uh, direction as an actor, and in fact, my only direction as an actor, came in my first turn as an actor, which was on the West Wing um, season finale of season two, in which I played... Um, I played Martin Sheen's father in a flashback to when Martin Sheen was in high school. And the way that happened is, you know, as you know, when we don't have all the guest actors cast, writers at the table will get, will sit at the table and read some of those parts. And so they asked me to read that part. And what I didn't know at the time was that the director, Tommy Schlamy, said to Aaron Sorkin, as soon as it was over, he kind of like pointed down to where I was and said, that's what we want. And he didn't mean we want O'Donnell to do the part, but what I was doing, whatever that was, and I don't know what it was, but what I was doing in that reading was was the way they wanted that part done, right? And so they went out to actors and they tried to get actors and some real names and they couldn't, they could, it was hard to schedule because there was some shooting in Washington, there was some shooting at Warner Brothers and some of those scenes were two weeks apart. It was very hard to get anyone. I know they went up to Mark Harmon. He couldn't do it. He wanted to do it. He ended up doing something else later in the series. Yeah. And so Tommy Schlemming called me on, I guess, I believe it was a Wednesday a morning in LA. He was shooting in Washington. And he said to me, uh, if the next guy turns this down, you're going to have to do it. And it shoots tomorrow morning, first shot in Washington. And I went, oh. And... Uh, I said, all right. And I, at that time, had the Washington flight schedule memorized. I said, okay, get me the 4 p.m. Uh, to Washington and, and call me. If, some, if this guy does accept it, call me and I will walk off that plane because I really don't want to go to Washington tomorrow. I got some stuff I have to do here. I don't want to do this. I, you know, you know, I don't. And so they didn't call me. I was on that plane. Um, luckily, Melissa Fitzgerald, one of the actors in the show, was also on the plane. She ran lines with me. And so the next day, there I was doing this exterior uh, and do the first shot. And, um, you know, we rehearse it. We do all this stuff. And, um, and so just when we're about ready to shoot, Tommy Schlamy comes walking over in my direction and gets as if he's inspecting lighting, which I don't think he was. Uh, and, and, and he's not really paying any attention to me and he gets very close enough to me that he can say this in what is just above a whisper uh, as he's looking over there at the lighting and he just says, do nothing. And then he walks away. 
And I knew what he meant. And I knew what he meant, thanks mostly to my high school baseball coach, Henry Lane, who walked out to the pitcher's mound after I walked two batters in a row on eight pitches. And he walked out to the pitcher's mound and he said, Lawrence, don't think. And he turned around and walked away. And it was, it was the Henry Lane moment. It was, it was that. And, um, and it was clear to me and I got it. And then I just did the part and I didn't get another word of direction for the, for the whole shoot. And, um, and in my other occasional TV acting ventures, uh, they just ignore me and don't, <laughs> they never, I, I, you know, I, I played, uh, I, I was on big love as, as Bill Paxton's lawyer for the entire series. I never got a word of direction because I don't think I was ever on camera. The whole thing was over my shoulder. Cause <laughs> as you know, when you're the day player, right. And yep. your scenes are entirely with the star and no one else, they're going to barely know you were there. You know, it's all going to be over your shoulder on, onto the star. Um, I was so pleased I got any FaceTime in my scenes with Richard Schiff. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, you know that that's the bias of that of that thing. And by the way, I mean I I love that. I love that. Oh, great! You're not going to see me. I I can't really screw this up. Uh, but that that do nothing was uh, was kind of a great moment. And, well, and you've heard the great. You've heard uh, Jack Lemon's direction from Billy Wilder. He he no. got the, Billy Wilder said, "Jack, do less, do less. If I do any less, I won't be doing anything." Exactly. <laughs> ah, that's it. That's it. Yep. That's it. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Thank you so much for doing this. It's it's a it's as a privilege to be able to chat with you about this. And well, obviously, I could go on and on. Thank you very much, Austin. I really appreciate it. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.